Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we're all about defying the improbable, dashing the doubters, and going for a gamble with a show we're calling Against the Odds. We'll hear about one woman's miraculous recovery from a serious injury and meet an Olympian who's gearing up for the 2016 Summer Games at the age of 60. But first, let's talk some numbers. D.C. government stats show that roughly 10 percent of residents have a criminal history. So we're talking like 60,000 people. And each year of the 8,000 people returning to the city after serving prison sentences, half of them go back to jail again within three years. Now, you may have heard lately about proposed legislation here in Washington to ban the box. In other words, to prevent employers from asking job applicants about their criminal records, at least in the preliminary stage of the application process. Councilmember Tommy Wells introduced the bill to help returning citizens have a better chance of finding gainful employment and maybe, just maybe, preventing them from winding up back behind bars. Or, as 50-year-old Clarence Smith calls it, avoiding the revolving door. How long were you in prison? Um, this time it was four years. Now I've done a 10-year time sentence, a six-year, a four-year, a five-year. So basically, my whole adult life, I've been back and forth through the revolving doors. But now, Clarence has been out for two years, and his entire life, he says, has changed. Thanks in major part to the Faith-Based Initiative, a mentorship program started up in 2002 by D.C.'s Court Services and Offender Supervision Agency, or CSOSA. Two years ago, the initiative linked Clarence with a faith-based volunteer mentor to offer support, encouragement, and all-around friendship as Clarence re-entered society. Now, Clarence has a full-time job with the Clean and Safe team in Shaw. And just last week, the initiative named him and his mentor, Mentee and Mentor of the Year. I was shocked because I haven't got an award since junior high school. And for me to get that award, I curled around the house. And, <laughs> man, now you couldn't tell me nothing. I, I was showing it to everybody. I was showing it to everybody. Yeah, see what I got? I recently sat down with Clarence and his mentor, Kenneth Baldwin, who, it turns out, was at one point a returning citizen himself. Well, I've had my own challenges with the judicial system, you know, just making some bad life choices, uh, substance use, uh, criminal activity, and I uh, paid the consequences for them. And um, through that process, discovered me, you know, discovered a better me. And I uh, try to translate that to others when they come out and help them discover themselves. So when you first met Kenneth, what were your initial impressions? Um, when I first met Mr. Baldwin, it was, am I ready for what he got to present to me because I'm not used to someone else giving me suggestions and telling me not to do this, which way to go. But then I was willing to accept it because I really needed to change my life because I ain't just hurt myself. I hurt my loved ones and my family as well as my kids. And I was trying to come home and do everything under my power to bring my family back, to trust in me, loving me. And how do you feel like you've come along in the past few years since oh, you've met? I ain't nothing but smiles. When I see the guys in the street, they say, wave, keep going. One time, I stand on the corner, profile and talking slick. That's not what's happening no more. I'm 50 years old. I don't have time for that no more. I had the time to live my life. And I'm getting married on my birthday in May. I'm happy as can be. And just try to base myself upon work, home, family, and my wife. So when you see Clarence's progress, how does that make you feel as his mentor? 
he said he was all smiles. I'm definitely all smiles <laughs> because some of the positive outcomes, I met him when I first got him. He was on maximum supervision. Now he's on minimum supervision, and that's a great thing. You know, he's been employed, gainfully employed. He's still employed. So I'm happy that he was willing to take some suggestions because not just Clarence, most men have a problem with taking direction from other men. So but because he was willing to go through that process and accept some of the information I was given, that was a great thing. Yeah, because at one point, I didn't want to accept nothing he had to say, but that was that street mentality and jail mentality. And I had to check myself and say, let me analyze. I didn't come home to be arrogant, disrespectful, stuff like that. I want to change, so I have to listen as well as he'll listen to me. It really do helps if you want to listen and take on which, what the other mentors have to give out because I'm quite sure it's more than just Mr. Baldwin that's helping Guys, just re-enter citizens coming back into society and that want some help and want to learn and want to do the right thing because behind the revolving doors, it don't count no more. It count when you come home and try to get your life on track. So when you listen to Clarence talking, does any of this resonate with you personally given your own personal background? Definitely. Definitely does. Um. You know, because me and him bought into a subculture and a lifestyle that really didn't have our best interests at the end. We bought into, you know, something that man was an illusion. And when I talk about finding our greater self, our best self, you know, and if we go the right route, you know, we'll, we'll reap the whole full benefit. You know, sometimes we reap benefits doing wrong, but it's not long lasting. It's about self-discovery. And, you know, we need to do that with a clear mind and a laser focus. Yeah, you need a clear head out here because, I mean, I ain't never struggled the way I struggled this time, these two years I've been home. But the struggle been a good struggle. Even with my job, I volunteered 90 days to become permanent. Guys laugh at you. Man, you working for nothing. Come on, hang out with me. Nah, I'm going to keep working this right here till something else come along. And to Norvell, in 57 days, I was permanent. I ain't had to do the whole 90. And I work on 9th Street in the Shaw community. And I'm up and down 9th. You ride 9th Street, you can always see me in this uniform. You see me any time of the day between 8.30 and 4.30. That's where I'm at. I'm proud of myself today. Yeah, I'm real proud of myself today. I can walk with my head up instead of with my chin in my chest. I walk real proud, smile, and keep it moving. That was Clarence Smith and his mentor, Kenneth Baldwin, from CISOSA's faith-based initiative. To learn more about the initiative, including how to become a mentor, visit our website, metroconnection.org. We turn now to a woman who defied the odds to such an extent that, uh, well, she's able to tell her story today. See, a few years ago, Virginia resident Kristen McGinnis made a major, major decision. She decided she no longer wanted to live. But as Matthew Schwartz tells us, while Kristen's life didn't actually end back then, a whole new life began And a quick word of warning that this story contains some material that may be disturbing to some listeners. The morning Kristen McGinnis woke up and decided to kill herself, the first thing she did was figure out how to minimize the impact on others. I walked around the house and straightened up a little bit 
Why? Because I knew that the police and friends and family would be coming to the apartment, and I wanted it to look nice. I met with Kristen last month at her home in McLean, Virginia, the day before she was scheduled to undergo surgery, her 33rd since her suicide attempt. The bullet that entered her jaw destroyed half her teeth and part of her face. Recovery has been tough for the 45-year-old former data management specialist. It's difficult for her to talk, but rebuilding her life has been nowhere near as difficult as the slide into despair that brought her to the barrel of a gun. Get it, Elsa. Get it. Get it. That's from a home movie of Kristen taken in 2008. Back then, Kristen loved life, she loved her dogs, and she loved to laugh. But not long after that video was recorded, everything started to go wrong. It started when I lost the job that I'd had for 18 years, and with that, a sense of purpose and identity. I also lost a good friend. My grandmother passed away. My dog died. I went through all of my savings. I lost my insurance. And most importantly, I stopped taking my medication. And that's when I fell into deep depression and had horrible, debilitating panic attacks. And so on the morning of October 22, 2010, Kristen awoke and made a decision. She would end her life using the 357 revolver she kept for protection. It was a conscious, deliberate decision. She realized tidying up wouldn't do much good if the place looked like a crime scene. I did think about blood, and that was part of the reason that I shot myself on the balcony. She also worried about, of all things, collateral damage. I knew that the bullet would come out of my head and possibly go through a wall. The balcony's walls, she realized, were sturdier and more likely to withstand the bullet. Talking to Kristen, one is overwhelmed by how much thought she was giving to the comfort of other people. Even the method she decided on was, in part, to make sure she could still help others. I wanted to shoot myself in the head because I'm an organ donor. And I wanted to preserve as much as myself as possible. Most people think that suicide is the ultimate selfish action. It's not. It's actually an effort to be considerate. I got to a point where I felt like I was a burden on everyone. And I couldn't bear it anymore. I couldn't bear being a burden. That's why I didn't make any phone calls. That's why I didn't reach out. I didn't want to make anyone feel like it was their fault. After straightening up, and just one hour after making her decision, Kristen decided it was time. I remember everything. I picked up a little Christmas ornament, Angel, to put in my hand. And I went out of the balcony and I sat down and I said a quick prayer, asking God to forgive me and to deliver me safely to heaven. And then I put the gun under my chin 
I pulled the trigger and discovered that there were only four bullets in the five chamber. So I basically won at Russian roulette. You pulled the trigger and it clicked? It clicked. It clicked. And I laughed. And I thought, I can't believe that after everything I failed at, I failed at this too. She thought maybe it was a sign from God that she shouldn't do it. She looked through her phone and thought about calling someone. But then Kristen, ever caring, ever considerate, put herself in their shoes and thought about how much that phone call would ruin their day. To get a call from me saying, I'm sitting here on my balcony about to kill myself, drop everything in your life and come for me now. She put the gun back up to her chin. This time... When she pulled the trigger, it didn't click. It was so loud. It was so much louder than I expected. And almost immediately, I couldn't see. The bullet shattered her jaw, destroying her right sinus, bounced off the bone of her nose and exploded, decimating her right eye. It didn't pierce her skull. Kristen was still holding the angel when she blacked out. The last thing she heard was the strain of sirens in the distance. I woke up in the hospital, and my dad was holding my hand. And he said to me, the only thing that you have to do is heal. I've taken care of everything for you. Everything will be okay. You just have to get better. I was devastated that I ruined my face. But I was so grateful to be alive, so thankful. I believe it was a miracle from God. I believe that an angel grabbed that bullet and saved my life. She decided to keep a journal of her experiences and her recovery. Staffers at Inova Fairfax Hospital saw Kristen's optimism and asked her to volunteer with the Trauma Survivors Network. I got a phone call from the coordinator, and she said, I think it would be wonderful as a volunteer. Kristen lets trauma victims know that she was also a trauma victim, a trauma survivor. I know what it feels like to be in that bed, and I hope that I can give you a little bit of hope that you aren't always going to be in this place. Talking about her experience helps her to understand it. She's even turning her journal into a book. She has an agent and interest from publishers. When I do my volunteer work, every time I speak to somebody and help them, a part of me heals. It's the same with the book. I'm writing about what led to my suicide and then how I came out of that dark place. How did she come out of that dark place? She took advantage of free clinics to get the medication that was so crucial, and she was constantly surrounded by family, friends, and hope. My friends were there at every step of the way, making me realize that beauty is how you treat people. It's something that comes from the inside. And the fact that I had destroyed my face was not where my beauty lies. Yeah, okay. Okay, 
Just 24 hours after undergoing her latest surgery, Kristen is in pretty good spirits. Surgery number 33, and it went very well. Kristen's recovery is going even better than she hoped it would. She attributes that to a few things, great doctors and nurses, a lot of rest, and her strong faith. A lot of people are praying for her. Do you feel that? Yes. Yes, I feel the prayers. I feel that I'm surrounded by love and good thoughts. And when I close my eyes, I can feel a presence of healing. Kristen still has another four or five surgeries to go, which she expects will take about a year. And then after that's done, I guess what's the next step in your life? I'm going to go back to school and become a nurse. Today, as Kristen rebuilds her life, she's so confident about the future. And she has a message for people who find themselves where she did, who think they have nowhere to turn. You aren't alone. There are people who care about you. There are people who are willing to be there for you. All you have to do is pick up the phone and call someone you love or, at the very least, call a helpline. Because there are services that will swoop in and take care of your needs and bring you out of this dark place. I know how helpless it feels. I know how despondent you are. And you aren't alone. You will be okay. I'm Matthew Schwartz. If you'd like to learn more about the Trauma Survivors Network, head to our website, metroconnection.org. In a minute, D.C. families try to hit the jackpot with the city's new lottery system for schools. This lottery system takes into account both maximizing the number of students who get matched up with seats, but also maximizing the number of students who get matched up at a place where they really want to go. That's just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. This week, our theme is Against the Odds. And in just a bit, we'll hear about a high-stakes gamble for many D.C. kids and parents right about now. The new citywide lottery for slots in public and charter schools. But first, we'll explore a different kind of gamble. In 2012, Maryland voted to expand casino gaming in the state. The idea was the added revenue would help fill state coffers and create thousands of jobs. And indeed, in the past year, gambling revenue in Maryland doubled, topping out at nearly $750 million. But as Jacob Fenston tells us, some of that money is coming from the pockets of so-called problem gamblers, people whose compulsion to gamble can be just as powerful and destructive as a drug addict's desire to use cocaine or heroin. 
Michael Rosen started gambling long before casinos came to Maryland. My dad was an alcoholic and a compulsive gambler. And he thought it would be a neat thing to do to teach me the odds of various gambling games. So at eight years old, he gave me a toy roulette wheel, a felt replica of a blackjack table, and a felt replica of a craft table, dice table. At first, it was just a game. He would play for baseball cards instead of money. As he got older, gambling turned into something less enjoyable and more urgent. In college, I gambled, I would say, five to six days a week. He became an omnivorous gambler. Poker, horse races, betting on sports, playing the stock market, to the point where he was six figures in debt. He'd ruined his marriage, and his daughter wouldn't speak with him. It was like being addicted to drugs or alcohol. To me, I got a high out of it. I mean, I really got, I love the action, the challenge, the competition. Really a high, absolute high. As with other addictions, changes have happened in their brain that make it very hard for them just to stop. Christopher Welsh is an addiction expert at the University of Maryland, and he's the medical director of the Maryland Center of Excellence on Problem Gambling. He says gambling addicts like Michael Rosen aren't alone. Statewide, there's something like 150,000 people categorized as problem gamblers. But compared to other addictions... Gambling is more hidden. You don't have an equivalent, really, of an overdose. A 2011 survey found problem gamblers in Maryland spent an average of $1,200 a month. While there's no hard data connecting Maryland's casino expansion to an increase in gambling addiction, there is some anecdotal evidence and some research from other states. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, press 1 now. The Center of Excellence on Problem Gambling runs a free helpline staffed by licensed counselor Yvonne Nelson Gershon. A lot of times when people are calling, they're, they're pretty depressed. They've gotten to the point where they've spent all their money and, or they're in trouble uh, with the law. The helpline got started in July of 2012 and saw a big bump in the number of calls last year, around the time that casinos started offering table games. It's definitely going to have an effect, but I think more than that, I think going to 24 hours. 24-hour casino operation, which was authorized by the same 2012 voter referendum that allowed table games. Now, gamblers can stay in casinos all night. They don't leave. They're there 17 18 hours. Several studies have found a correlation between someone's proximity to a casino and their likelihood of developing a gambling problem. One study found that communities within 50 miles of a casino had double the rate of problem gambling. Tom Coppinger is a spokesperson for Maryland's largest casino, Maryland Live. He says he can't comment on the connection between casinos and gambling addiction, but says it's an issue the company takes very seriously. One, it's law, but it's also ingrained in our our code of ethics. By law, casinos have to provide training to staff and information to customers. They also help fund things like Maryland's Helpline. Casinos pay the state about $3 million a year toward problem gambling programs. That's roughly the same amount Maryland casinos rake in every 36 hours. Stephen Martino, director of the Maryland Lottery and Gaming Control Agency, notes that's a lot more money than the state was spending on gambling addiction before the casinos were built, and far more than neighboring Virginia and D.C. are spending. There's very little public policy emphasis or finances put towards addressing this uh, until casino gaming comes to a state. Maryland's funding formula means that gambling addiction programs don't get funded until after casinos are up and running. 
Keith White, executive director of the National Council on Problem Gambling, says that's backwards. You know, we don't wait to say we're going to increase the amount of alcohol bars so that we can do more drunk driving prevention. White says Maryland and other states aren't spending enough to prevent problem gambling. The cost of gambling addiction uh, can be about $1,200 per addict per year. And the majority of those costs are criminal justice and healthcare related. So they fall directly on not just individuals, but on the state. Gambling addict Michael Rosen sought help for the first time in 1981 after he found himself on the wrong side of a very big bet. He made his way to his first Gamblers Anonymous meeting. The first six months that I stopped gambling in 1981, I had physical pain. And there were many times I had to grab my right hand with my left hand, because I'm a righty, to stop me from picking up the telephone and calling a bookie calling a stockbroker. It it was definite, without question, withdrawal. Over the years, he had several relapses, but since 2008, he hasn't stepped inside a casino or placed a bet. Rosen is now devoted to helping others in distress. He works for the Maryland Center of Excellence on Problem Gambling and runs a Gamblers Anonymous group in Baltimore. I'm Jacob Fenston. turn now to lotteries, but not the kind where money is the prize. No, in this case, the prize is a slot in one of Washington, D.C.'s top schools. Thousands of students have applied through the district's new lottery system, which covers both traditional public schools and charter schools. Special correspondent Kavitha Cardoza met up with Abigail Smith, D.C.'s deputy mayor for education, who says in the past, the system was far more complex and confusing for families. If you wanted to apply to a charter school, you applied to each one separately. The deadline was different for everyone. You found out whether you got in at a different time. And then at the same time, if you were applying to DCPS, to an out-of-boundary school, or to pre-K for any school, you would apply through the DCPS out-of-boundary lottery. And so what would happen was that parents would be on multiple waiting lists and therefore having a difficult time planning for the coming school year. And at the same time, schools wouldn't know who was coming and would have their what, what we call the great shuffle, the roster shuffle, which would happen over the course of the summer and into the early fall, even after school had started. So frustrating for kids, frustrating for, for parents and, and for schools. And so now you have a uniform lottery system, a common lottery system. Parents will rank their top 12 schools, traditional and charter, and a computer will match them with a choice. And 90% of schools are participating. So you you go on to myschooldc.org. You can find out information about all the schools that are participating, and that includes all DCPS schools. And then on the charter side, of all of the available seats on the charter side, 95% are, are included in the lottery. And then there's a computer algorithm that runs a lottery. The idea is to provide seats for as many students as possible in the lottery. So no student will get more than one seat through the lottery. If you get into a school, you're then waitlisted at any school that you ranked higher than the one that you got into, but not at the ones that you ranked lower. So we know that right now, the waitlist numbers that we hear about every year, that there are 20,000 kids on waitlists, 
those are the same kids on multiple wait lists, and there was no way in the past for a school to be able to take into account what school the kid or their parents most wanted them to go to. So the idea is that this lottery system takes into account both maximizing the number of students who get matched up with seats, but also maximizing the number of of students who get matched up at a place where they really want to go. Do families that maybe work multiple jobs, that aren't computer savvy, that don't have the time to do the research, are they at a disadvantage under this new system? So we have made a significant focus on ensuring that all families have access. So not only have we done a sort of standard ad campaign and on buses and that sort of thing, all of the schools have information, but we've also reached out to community groups. We've done door-to-door canvassing. Every public library, all the staff in the libraries have been trained. The librarians can help you actually go through the process. There's a hotline that you can call and and actually go through it over the phone if if that's easier for you, and in multiple languages. We actually think that what this will do is not limit access. It actually will increase access for all families because everyone is able to, without having to go to an individual school and drop off an application and make separate phone calls about when the deadline is, they can get all the information in one place. They can apply to multiple schools at the same time. So it actually really reduces the burden on families. That was Abigail Smith, the Deputy Mayor for Education in D.C., speaking with special correspondent Kavitha Cardoza. Partial support for education reporting on WAMU 88.5 comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Our next story today is about an often risky business where the odds aren't always on your side. This week, the U.S. House of Representatives voted to roll back major reforms to the National Flood Insurance Program. When those reforms first passed two years ago, they were meant to shore up a program that was $24 billion in debt. But the changes meant some homeowners' insurance premiums spiked by more than 1,000%. Among those unlucky homeowners, the Virginia family were about to meet. Jonathan Wilson visited their home near the Rappahannock River and brings us their story. About a year ago, 38-year-old Jeremy Range and his wife decided to take the plunge and buy a house. And one of the things that we did when we determined uh, if we could afford to live here was we got a quote for our flood insurance and uh, did our budget out for, you know, for the entire year, decided if we could afford to live here. And we determined at the time that we could. The flood insurance worked out to about $2,000 a year. No small amount, but for the ranges, doable. But about a month ago, Range got a call from his insurance company, USAA. And the lady's like, well, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but uh, because of the new FEMA laws with the Bigger Waters Act, uh, your flood insurance is going up to $32,000 a year. So that's $2,000 to 32,000. And I say it twice because every time I tell someone that my flood insurance went up to $32,000, they instinctively think they misheard me. That's a 1,500% increase, an amount that Range says would essentially guarantee the loss of his home, perhaps through foreclosure. My wife and I, we've worked hard to, to get a good credit score 
and we never are late in any kind of payments, and this will basically destroy that. The Bigger Waters Act of 2012 required the National Flood Insurance Program, a partnership between the federal government and private insurance companies, to raise rates on older, high-risk homes. Almost everyone agreed the system needed an overhaul. It was $24 billion in debt. Families who have lived in their homes since at least 2012 were guaranteed that their premiums wouldn't go up more than 25% each year. But newly purchased homes, such as the ranges, would be getting their increases all at once. If this thing does not pass, then our mortgages will probably go up to uh, four, maybe even $5,000 a month. I mean, that's just preposterous. Apparently, a lot of people in Congress agree, and now FEMA is set to cap rate increases for everyone at 15 to 18 percent a year. But there are plenty of people who say by rolling back flood insurance reform, Congress is putting the needs of a few homeowners ahead of sound fiscal and even environmental policy. Jimmy Grandy is vice president of the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies, a group that's been staunchly opposed to using federal money to suppress rate increases. Now we have the, the, the realtors and the home builders with a very powerful lobbies who benefit from the suppressed rates because they just want to sell the next house. They're not really, they don't have to really worry about is that house safe for you to live in. Grandy says there are some places where homes simply don't belong. There's certain parts of our land that we shouldn't be living in. It's not good for the environment. The, the, we need certain runoff. We need wetlands. They're, they're, our, they're what keep our coasts healthy. And you're also putting somebody in harm's way. His solution? Congress should simply write checks to those few homeowners seeing astronomical increases to help them offset the new rates. Otherwise, Grandy says, Congress is continuing to hide the real risk of living in flood-prone areas. We don't ever want to lose sight of the stories. There are families in true hardship with the flood insurance program, but there's just not all that many of them. We could help them without undoing the whole program. Even Jeremy Range agrees that this week's supposed solution is at best a short-term fix. Range says even with that 18% cap, in four years, his flood insurance will cost him an extra $100 each month, more than he can afford. These homes have been here for 200 years. Why should I pay the maximum FEMA pr price for possibly replacing my home when it's been here for 200 years? It's not going to get washed away. And if nothing changes down the road, the Range family will likely have to find a new source of income or abandon their dream house in historic Falmouth. I'm Jonathan Wilson. After the break, carving a new path for women in Orthodox Judaism. I met with a group of the kids during one of the Shabbat morning groups, and one of the parents said, does anybody know who this is? And one of the kids looked at me and said, oh yeah, that's our new rabbi. <laughs> it's coming up next on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and as we continue our Against the Odds show, we'll head next. Uh, 
take a quick look at the dairy kitchen. To a kitchen, but not just any kitchen. So this is the dairy kitchen. So you can see it's a bit smaller. Um, Indeed, as 28-year-old Ruth Belinsky friedman points out, the dairy kitchen is a bit smaller than the other kitchen, the meat kitchen, here at Ohev Shalom, the National Synagogue, an Orthodox Jewish temple in northwest D.C. Um, we're going to try to keep the, the door to whatever kitchen is not being used closed when the other kitchen's in use, you know, just because, like, sometimes for cooking events there might be a lot of people here and just, you know, it's easier to keep track of everybody that way. Um, Friedman is also, leading a training session for congregants interested in becoming a mashkiach. That's the person who makes sure kosher kitchens are in accordance with kashrut, or Jewish dietary laws. Basically, in order to serve as a mashkiach here, one should be fully shomer Shabbos and shomer kashrut. Um, this type of training is just one of Belinsky's many jobs as Ohev Shalom's new maharat. The maharat's not actually a Hebrew word, right? Correct. It's an acronym. It stands for Manhiga Hilchatit Ruchanit Toranit, which means a leader in Jewish law, spirituality, and in Torah, in Jewish teachings. Blinsky is one of just three women with that title. They were ordained as Orthodox members of the clergy this past June in the very first graduation ceremony of Yeshivat Maharat, a New York-based institution training Orthodox women as spiritual leaders and authorities of Jewish law. Maharat Ruth grew up in a modern Orthodox family in Evanston, Illinois. Her father was the community's rabbi. Just before the Mashgiach training, I had a chance to sit down with Ruth in her office, where she told me when she was younger, she never could have foreseen herself taking this path. In Orthodoxy, typically, until recently, women haven't really served in leadership capacities in synagogues or even at, at day schools, certainly the schools that, that I went to. And so I think that subconsciously, I just kind of assumed that I would not pursue a career in Orthodox Jewish life because I just didn't see women really in those positions. And so I think, you know, just assumed that was not for me. So given that subconscious thought you had growing up, are you kind of among a rare breed right now in terms of Orthodox women doing what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are only a handful of Orthodox women working in synagogues across the country. This is a, a new idea, clearly. Um, and so it's not, there isn't really an existing model for it. And so it takes a woman who is interested in this position, which is not that common, and also a synagogue that welcomes female leadership as well, in addition to male leadership. In terms of duties, we've got the rabbi, we've got you. Um, I know there's a lot of overlap. Can you sort of talk about what he does, what you do, where they differ, where they connect? Our roles, I would say, differ um, primarily in terms of that I really feel the the position of like an assistant clergy, whereas um, he is the senior. So folks often say like, oh, so what's your job like? And my response is always, um, my job description has 16 items on it. <laughs> Which means I do a little bit of everything, which is um, fantastic, and I'm really grateful for that. So I started off today, for example, taking care of some emails, planning programming that's coming up at the synagogue. As I got ready and did the dishes, I listened, I listened to a class on a topic I'm teaching about the Shabbat. I then had a study session with a local um, female reform rabbi. Um, we studied together once a week. And then I just went to a conversion, and now I'm back here, and we're about to train people to serve as supervisors of the kosher kitchen. But then you can also do sermons, you can officiate mm -hmm. ceremonies. Can you talk about that? Um, in terms of ceremony specifically, so I have officiated at a couple of what's called the Simchat Bat, which is a ceremony to welcome a new baby girl 
really into the faith and into the community. You know, for, for boys, we have a, a bris, a ritual circumcision. And so for girls, um, many communities have embraced a new ritual called a simchat bat. So I've officiated at a couple of those, officiated at a funeral, unfortunately. And yeah, I've been in, involved in a wedding. And so a, lot, a lot, little bit of everything once again happening here. It's true that obviously there's a much more open-minded mentality here. But how do you feel about the fact that in orthodoxy, you can't go from assistant to senior. You know, that's an interesting question. Some people have asked me that question is, could a maharat be the sole member of the clergy at a synagogue? And the answer is, there's no reason why not. It hasn't happened yet primarily because we're pretty young still and not ready to, to be in those positions. The limitations of a woman's role in orthodoxy are true for all women in orthodoxy. By that, I mean, there are three areas of synagogue life that women would not participate. So women, myself included, do not count towards the quorum of 10 men called a minion that is required for um, communal prayer. A woman could not lead those services either. And then um, a woman cannot serve as a witness to a religious transaction. So the most common example would probably be a marriage. So a Jewish wedding ceremony requires two witnesses, um, and a woman cannot serve as one of those two witnesses. Now, as I always mention, because I know this isn't true of all faiths, the rabbi or member of the clergy is not necessarily involved in leading services. Um, Rabbi Hertzfeld here does not usually lead services. And so none of those three things at all limits um, the ability of someone to serve as the member of the clergy of a synagogue or in another capacity. What about the kids here, the young people? What have interactions been like with them? I adore the kids here. They're wonderful. <laughs> we have tons of them, which is really great. Our shul has a synagogue, has a lot of young families. As you see here on my desk, I have a couple of drawings that one of the girls here made for me. Uh, so they're a really thriving, wonderful component of the synagogue. What do you think it's like for these little girls to see you here as the Maharaj, to see a woman in this position? I think the great thing is that for them, it will be normal. <laughs> um, that is what is so really exciting. Um, you know, what I, I think, you know, one of the important parts of creating this field of women's leadership um, within Orthodox life, you know, it's not for me. It's to, to teach girls that they also can do this if they want to um, and have their voices be heard in these conversations about Jewish life. And I think that's really important. And the fact that for a whole group of boys and girls here, that's normal to see, I think, is really spectacular. You know, there are there are members of, of the Jewish community who have much more old school thoughts about it. Mm-hmm. Have you had any personal encounters with people? Or- you know, it's so, it's it's pretty easy to say something about a person or a movement, you know, on a blog, let's say, or in a Facebook comment. But when you actually encounter someone face-to-face, those types of interactions are very rare. And so I think that once when people see, even people who may be opposed to the idea, once they see the work that we're doing here and that the community is supportive and that this brings positive energy to a Jewish Orthodox community, then they're, you know, they're happy and they understand that this works for this community. I certainly don't expect it to work for every community, nor do I try to impose it on every community, but for the communities that um, are eager and excited about, including women's leadership, it's a wonderful thing. And so I think people, even if they're not personally on board, they respect that. That was Ruth Belinsky Friedman, or Maharat Ruth, of Oheb Shalom, the National Synagogue in Northwest D.C.
We'll close out today's Against the Odds show with a woman who's been defying the odds her entire life. After graduating from American University, Anne Abernathy became a professional singer and performed all over the country. Then she moved over to sports. And now, when many people her age are thinking about retirement, Abernathy is taking on a big new challenge. Lauren Ober has her story. On a recent weekday afternoon, Anne Abernathy is navigating a set of stairs at the Bull Run Public Shooting Center in Centerville, Virginia. With one hand on the railing and the other on a cane, Abernathy slowly picks her way down the steps leading to the subterranean archery range. This isn't exactly what you expect to witness when you're meeting an Olympic hopeful. But then the Virginia woman isn't your average athlete. I'm 60 years old. I'm not a young pup at this. There's another detail that might prove even more of an issue than her age and the fact that she's hobbling around after a recent knee operation. See, Abernathy is a total beginner at this sport. She picked up archery only 14 months ago. I only know how to train for the Olympics. I don't know how to do something just recreational. And so it is that Abernathy, a sexagenarian archery novice, has her sights set on the 2016 Summer Olympics in Rio de Janeiro. If she makes it, she will likely be the oldest competitor in the Games. But it won't be the first time. Abernathy is a six-time Olympian. She represented the U.S. Virgin Islands in the sliding sport of luge and wears a gold necklace featuring the Olympic rings as proof. At the time of her first Olympics, the 1988 Calgary Games, Abernathy was 34. She went on to compete in Albertville, Lillehammer, Nagano, Salt Lake City, and Torino. When I first started, I didn't think Olympics. I just thought I really enjoy doing this sport. But luge takes a toll on the body. And although I really love the sport, my body had had enough. She's not kidding about that. Since taking up luge in the 80s, Abernathy has had 19 knee operations and a smattering of other surgeries. She's broken her back and had her share of head injuries. With that in mind, archery seems like a way safer option. Here's one of the problems that I have, and it's from the back injury. If I shoot 144 arrows in a day, the elbow bends more and more and more when it needs to be straight out. To understand Abernathy's obsession with the Olympics and with sport in general, you have to know a little something about her upbringing. She was born in Florida to a father in the Air Force and a mother who didn't think it was appropriate for girls to play sports. Well, I love playing softball. My mom wouldn't let me. I wasn't allowed to do any sports in school. My mom wouldn't let me. I could swim. I was allowed to swim and play tennis. But nothing else. Decades later, Abernathy discovered luge during a trip to Lake Placid. At the 1980 Winter Olympic venue, Abernathy and some friends watched the sliders fly down the track. Soon, a luge coach sidled up to them. And he said, anybody wants to try it, take a step forward. And immediately, 18 people took a step back. And I was a little slower than the others. And I was there, and I turned to the guy next to me, and we looked at each other, and I said, why not? And so began Anne Abernathy's 20-year luge career. Over the years, she picked up a nickname, Grandma Luge. At the Bull Run shooting range in Centerville, Abernathy is working with a fellow Olympian to hone her newfound archery skills. Ruth Rowe competed in the 1984 Summer Games in Los Angeles as a member of the U.S. archery team, and the pair make a perfect combo. They bicker and tease like an old married couple, and they have their own way of communicating. Ruth will see me across the room and she'll say, steer. 
and, and, and everybody steer. goes, what? <laughs> and what she means is use the same muscles that I use to steer with. So we have our own language that we were able to pick up by combining both of the sports. It got me to World Cup last year within my first 12 months. Roe, who is 66, seems to understand her athlete's particular set of challenges. She has the discipline of training. She's had the experience in high-level competition. She knows how to handle herself mentally. But what might make Abernathy's march toward Rio even harder than it already is, is the fact that she's low on cash. Unlike many other Olympic hopefuls who ink sponsorship deals with shoe or car or yogurt companies, Abernathy has to find the money to compete herself. This endeavor is not cheap. It's a massive expense. And I'm not exactly sure how I'm going to get there. I'm, I'm getting there on a shoestring right now. And I'm hoping that somebody will jump on board and help me get there. When I got to my last Olympics in Luge, I literally got there one T-shirt at a time. To that end, Abernathy was, until recently, couch surfing at a friend's house in Falls Church to cut down on expenses. Then a couple of weeks ago, a family in Vienna adopted the Olympian, allowing her to stay in their house rent-free while she trains with Ruth Rowe at Bull Run. It's just one of many sacrifices Abernathy is making to hit the bullseye on this dream. What happens if you don't make it? I don't even think that way. That's not... My, my brain doesn't even... I, I don't know how to answer that question. There is no not making it. Ann Abernathy intends to get to Rio. Odds be damned. I'm Lauren Ober. Want to see Ann Abernathy training for the 2016 Rio Games? We have photos on our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jonathan Wilson, Jacob Fenston, Kavitha Cardoza, and Lauren Ober, along with reporter Matthew Schwartz. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Tyler Daniels. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can find all the music we use each week on metroconnection.org. You can also hear the entire show on our website by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. You can also subscribe to our podcast there or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll defy this long winter and its accompanying cabin fever with some of our favorite Metro Connection stories set in the great outdoors. We'll head back to the Appalachian Trail, where hikers are rebuilding a historic cabin log by log. We'll tour the ruins of Maryland's Seneca Quarry, and we'll swing by Rock Creek Park to meet D.C.'s Birdman. There are disappointing days, a lot of those, but there are very exciting days, and that's what brings you out every time. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.